science fiction has long been a suitable companion to cinema. From as far back as 1902, when Georges Méliès adapted Jules Verne's Voyage to the Moon, cinema's visionary, future and alternate world potential has embraced the genre as a lifelong companion. It should come as no surprise then that however naive they may appear to be today, on closer inspection the earliest science fiction films are quite simply the most influential films not just in the genre but sometimes within cinema itself. And while Méliès undoubtedly set the groundwork with the sleight of hand you would expect from a magician who had turned his box of tricks into a theatrical stage show and then took that show and repurposed it into a film camera, you really need look no further than Fritz Lang's Metropolis to encounter one of the most influential films of all time. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. For a long time, Lang said it began in October 1924, when he and his producer Eric Palmer took an ocean liner from Germany to America to promote their fantasy epic Die Nibelungen. Historical papers have long since told us otherwise, but for a filmmaking legend such as Lang, his mythology often punctures the truth. So let us surmise that it was upon docking in New York that Lang first saw the vision that inspired his sci-fi masterpiece. Viewing Manhattan from Hudson Bay, he was awestruck by the city's skyline, which emerged, he said, like a veil of sail, scintillating and very light, a luxurious backdrop suspended in the dark sky to dazzle, distract and hypnotise. Another of Lang's fellow passengers was architect Eric Mendelssohn, who had been commissioned by Berliner Tageblatt, the leading liberal newspaper in the Weimar Republic, to conduct a field study of America's major cities. With a daily circulation of almost a quarter of a million, Berliner Tageblatt could well afford to subsidise Mendelssohn's expedition. But upon his return, Mendelssohn did not limit his findings to their article. He published an 82-page book, America, Bilderbuch eines Architekten, copiously illustrating the skyscrapers that were springing up across the great continent. As for Lang, when he returned to Berlin, his eye had turned away from fantasy and was fixed firmly on the future. To Lang, New York was at once modern and medieval, hopeful and frightening, offering a new beginning to the 20th century and a shattering end to the old one. Don't touch that! Get away! Get back! What are you afraid of? Turn it on! Impossible! Once the reaction starts, it'll spread to all the turbinium in the planet. Mars will go into global meltdown. That's why the aliens never turned it on. And you expect me to believe you? Who gives a shit what you believe? In 30 seconds, you'll be dead. And I'll blow this place up and be home in time for cornflakes. The truth was that work in Metropolis had begun months before Lang even set sail from New York. At the time, he was married to screenwriter Thea von Harbu. Together, they had collaborated on seven pictures and would work together on a further five. Von Harbu was drawing on a variety of sources, such as Sophocles' ancient myth Oedipus Rex, to more modern literary works like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, H.G. Wells' The Sleeper Awakes, and Carol Capek's R.U.R., which introduced the world to the term robot. Initially, what made Metropolis different from the previous Lang von Harbour projects was that von Harbour was writing Metropolis as a book, concurrently with the development of the screenplay, which is exactly what happened some four decades later on another sci-fi classic, 
When Arthur C. Clarke wrote the novella The Sentinel, in conjunction with collaborating with Stanley Kubrick on the screenplay for 2001. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Lang and von Harbu completed the first draft of the script in June 1924, and by May 1925, Eric Palmer had Metropolis in production. Providing Lang with the means to deliver a vision so ambitious, a plan so complicated, and special effects so difficult, it would be almost a full two years before the film reached the screen. While in college, Lang had studied civil engineering, and aimed to apply his knowledge to conjuring the grandiose scale for the film. 6,000 acres of the backlot of Babelsberg Studios were taken up by sets over 70 feet high. Then, 36,000 extras were drafted in, not only to populate the sprawling modernist city, but also risk their lives in the water-run destruction of that city. The scale of production was so sprawling that it took three production designers, Otto Hunter, Eric Kettlehut, and Karl Fallbrecht, to transform von Harbour's words on the page into three-dimensional structures. There were so many large-scale sets, their construction quadrupled the budget from 1.5 million Reichsmark to 5.3 million, resulting in what was then the most expensive European film to date. But after the film was premiered on January 10, 1927, business at the box office was so sluggish that by the end of its run, Metropolis had pulled in just over 75,000 Reichsmark a net loss of 5.25 million. Now you freely admit to detonating the engines of and thereby destroying an M-class star freighter, a rather expensive piece of hardware. 42 million in adjusted dollars. That's minus payload, of course. The lifeboat's flight recorder corroborates some elements of your account in that for reasons unknown, the Nostromo set down on LV-426, an unsurveyed planet at that time, that it resumed its course and was subsequently set for self-destruct by you for reasons unknown. Not for reasons unknown. I told you. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew and your expensive ship. So how could a film which suffered such a financial loss, obviously seen by so few people, turn out to be so influential? To begin, producer Eric Palmer was convinced that the project could be salvaged so he and Lang decided to recut it for its international release, reducing its two and a half hour running time down to 115. And when that version didn't work, a further half hour was taken out so that it played at a near incomprehensible 90 minutes. It resulted in not just shorter versions, but radically different films, because as each new cut deleted sequences, entire subplots were lost and it appeared that the film had different meanings. Some saw it as a critique of capitalism, others a communist allegory, while yet others saw it as fascist. And on that last matter, it must be said that even the full-length version is very confused in its politics, quite often venerating the totalitarian ideology. Look closely at the ending and you will see that the workers are not liberated, but simply reordered by a leader who is not elected by the people, or even a representative of the people, 
but instead emerges like a messiah from the ruling plutocratic class, which unwittingly prefigured the way, some six years later, just how the Nazis propagandized the electorate with the promise of Volksgemeinschaft, a nationalism under which all class tensions would disappear. Yet, another reading of the film offered up a Freudian angle, suggesting it was an edible struggle of a son trying to overcome his father. As for von Harbu, she neutralized such interpretations by opening her novel with an epigraph that declared, This book is not of today, or of the future. It tells of no place, it serves no party or class. It is a moral which grows on the pillar of understanding that the mediator between the brain and muscle must be the heart. They hate us, you know. The humans, they'll stop at nothing. My mommy doesn't hate me. Because I'm special and unique. Because there's never been anyone like me before, ever. Mommy loves Martin because he is real, and when I am real, Mommy's going to read to me and tuck me in my bed and sing to me and listen to what I say, and she will cuddle with me and tell me every day a hundred times a day that she loves me. But no matter what version people saw, and no matter how they interpreted what they saw, there was one thing that united everything, and that was the film's gargantuan set designs. Contrary to popular belief, Metropolis is not the first full-length science fiction film. In fact, several of its most memorable images are taken from an earlier, if little-remembered 1924 Russian film, Elita, Queen of Mars, most notably when the workers are fed into a giant machine. The entirety of the Russian film is available for viewing on YouTube. So what makes Metropolis truly a landmark film is its visual design. The society it depicts is a strictly vertical one, with the workers toiling away underground, while the plutocratic elite play in the sunny climbs of the skyscrapers. Commuting about the sprawl is not just done by trains, tubes and cars, but also by planes. And so the influence of Metropolis can be seen in anything and everything, from William Cameron Menzies' adaptation of H.G. Wells' Things to Come, and Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville, right across to mega-budget Hollywood productions such as Blade Runner, and inevitably its sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Then there is Terry Gilliam's Brazil, as well as Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, and both adaptations of Total Recall. Then there is Metropolis's robot, Maria, whose likeness can be seen in Star Wars C-3PO and all its derivations, as well as other female robots in The Stafford Wives, AI Artificial Intelligence, The Terminator 3 The Rise of the Machines, HBO's series Westworld, and the Oscar-winning Ex Machina. What do you think? What's it a drawing of? Don't you know? No. I thought you would tell me. Don't you know? I do drawings every day. But I never know what they're of. But Metropolis's influence goes beyond science fiction and into such films as The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. The design for some of Metropolis's sets were so big that there was no way the budget could accommodate their construction. Instead, it fell to cinematographer Eugene Shuftan to perfect a technique that broke open a whole new way of manipulating and articulating cinematic space. Shuftan was not originally involved in filmmaking. He had a background as a painter and an architect, but he found himself fascinated by the medium of moving pictures and, incredulous as it may sound, 
Metropolis was only Shuftan's second film as cinematographer, his first being Lang's previous picture, Die Nibelungen. Shuftan's technique, or as it came to be known, the Shuftan process, enabled a range of complex shots never before possible in film. The way the process worked was that a meticulously detailed miniature set was constructed. That set was then positioned at an angle behind the camera. A mirror was then mounted at 45 degrees in front of the camera so that it reflected the miniature set. Next, an area of the mirror was then scratched away so the camera could see through the mirror into the distance onto a real-life set to create the illusion that one enormous set had been constructed. Which means that beyond the adventures of Robin Hood, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, variations of Shuftan's innovation can be seen in films as varied as Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Black Narcissus, An American in Paris, Spartacus and The Birds. However, Shuftan's technique required the camera to remain in a locked-off position, and subsequent filmmakers wished to liberate the illusion yet further by moving the camera, which meant that the Shuftan process was replaced by the travelling matte shot, and then later, blue screen. Which means that if it were not for Eugene Shuftan, the likes of 2001, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Aliens, Dances with Wolves, the Star Wars saga, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and any of the Marvel DC comic adaptations would not have been possible. Is it better to be feared or respected? And I say, is it too much to ask for both? With that in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries Freedom Line. It's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it, that's how America does it, and it's worked out pretty well so far. Despite Metropolis's disastrous box office performance, Lang's career did not suffer. He went on to direct Germany's first sound film, the masterpiece M. After the Nazis came to power, Lang went to America where he worked across a variety of genres. Westerns such as The Return of Frank James and Rancho Notorious, noir mysteries the Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street, and crime dramas The Big Heat and Human Desire. But strong as they all are, none of them match his German work. As for Eugene Schuftan, he also survived the Metropolis debacle, working exclusively in Europe throughout the 20s and early 30s. But like Lang, when the Nazis took power in 1933, he left Germany. But unlike Lang, Schuftan worked firstly in France and Britain and then after the war, alternated back and forth to the United States, where in 1961, he was awarded an Oscar for his work on Robert Rosson's classic drama, The Hustler. Ironically, not one frame of that film required his groundbreaking technique, which means the only trick shots you see are on the pool table. 